Grazers make grass. That's how it works in Africa. That's how it works everywhere. Mammoths will not be completely required to get the mammoth step back, but it would help because um, elephants generally are good at ripping up trees or knocking down trees, and then that opens it up for the other grazers to come in and turn it into grassland. That, that's a normal cycle, the way it develops in, say, the Serengeti in Africa. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. How's everybody doing tonight? Please give a big round of applause for our first of many speakers tonight, uh, the co-founder and president of The Long Now, Mr. Stuart Brand. Thank you. A little bit of wardrobe here to get into the scene. You'll see more of this. Um, it's a trip report, but it's, and it's a cool trip, but it's a trip report that's a window into some very big stories that reach way back in time, way forward in time. The occasion for this actually happening, uh, that the three of us, me and Alexander Rose and Kevin Kelly and some others, were able to go to Siberia, to Pleistocene Park, to the Proto-Mammoth Steppe, uh, came about because there's a film being made about me, um, a documentary by uh, Jason Sussberger and David Alvarado, who are here tonight. And to give you a sample of what they're up to, let's see if this advances it. Here we are. That's a branch. Oh, well. Did you, see, did you see the one, the mammoth one back there? Back, yeah. Yep. Back there somewhere. In a way, what we're doing here at Pleistocene Park in northeastern Siberia is bringing two visions together. That looks like uh, the star of the show. Yeah, the mother load. Where do you look for samples most and stuff like this that you can use? I, you can get it from uh, any part of anything under the skin. Hmm. One science experiment. This is what George Church is doing at the Harvard lab to get pieces of the woolly mammoth back to life. One trait at a time, moving the genes for mammoth traits into elephant cell lines, eventually into elephant embryos that are on the path to becoming mammoth embryos. Reading DNA, writing DNA, and then this editing enzyme, CRISPR, allows us to swap out almost any DNA that we want. That combination is very powerful. 
we will make cold resistant elephants and hopefully soon the matching vision is what's here at pleistocene park here the ecological attempt is to basically restore the mammoth steppe, bring back the northern grasslands, which is to bring back the, the density of grazing animals on the landscape. Not only are they trampling the tundra into grass, they're trampling the snow into thinner snow in the winter so the cold can get through the, the snow and ice and keep the ground really cold, the permafrost really frosty, and uh, keep it from thawing even though we have a warming climate going on. Oh, wow. This is magical. Wow. Oh, it's crystals. This is a refrigerated time capsule of vast scale. So you're going down deep in the earth, but you're going down deep in temperature and in time in both senses. This is a deep time excursion. It's a frontier still after all these years. It's wild and woolly and arctic. Let's see, is there anything after this? Uh, all right, okay, so that, those are the guys that are making the film. This is um, me talking with um, one of the Zimovs, Father Zimov, uh, his son, uh, Sergei Zimov, and his son Nikita are the ones that are doing the Pleistocene Park scheme out of their own pockets. These are guys who are doing probably potentially more over hundreds and thousands of years than anybody to really deal with climate, and uh, they get zero funding for that. They had a Kickstarter and got, I don't know, Few hundred, few tens of thousands of dollars. But likewise, what George Church is doing to bring back the woolly mammoth, his work at Harvard is also being basically funded out of pocket. Um, this is the case with almost all the de extinction projects. Long Now has been in the thick of this from the beginning because Revive and Restore was set up uh, over six years ago um, by Ryan Phelan. Where's Ryan? There she is. And me. Ryan runs it, and we started out doing de extinction and then moved on to include genetic rescue for preventing extinction in various species that need a genetic assist for various reasons to overcome disease or invasive creatures or whatever, climate change in some cases, like coral reefs we're working on now. But de extinction is where it all began. It began with woolly mammoths, with the passenger pigeon. Uh, with the heath hen in Martha's Vineyard, uh, with the uh, great auk, which was a penguin-like animal that lived in the entire North Atlantic. Uh, even the dodo is now being taken seriously as something that might be revived, and it could revive the entire island of Mauritius along with it. So de-extinction uh, <clears throat> started as a project within Longnow, and uh, Longnow is very good as a sort of a nonprofit incubator. We incubated here and then went independent just a little over a year ago with our own board, our own funding. Actually, $3 million came in, and some other funders are here. Uh, so it's moving along. And the filmmakers wanted to get that in the film. So they arranged for this trip for us all to go to 
Pleistocene Park, George Church, and people from here, and uh, some others that you'll see in the film, to examine the other side of the vision. You can't have mammoths without habitat. And if mammoth habitat and basically the old habitat that they helped make, which was grasslands in the far north, comes back, uh, that would be very good news for climate. We'll go into more details on that. But first I want to let you know about the trip, and that's what Alexander has done a beautiful job of, of uh, documenting. Thank you, Stuart. Um, and I, I want to thank uh, Ryan also, who this whole night is her fault. Um, I was, my first response is, why would anyone want to hear about our silly little trip to Siberia? But I wrote a medium piece on it, and, um, and I think it, it's, it's a curious place that you, you can't actually get there from here. Um, you'll, you'll notice how close it is to us, where we went. You can't go that way. I mean, this is still this product of the Cold War. The planes don't really fly over that gulf, um, certainly not ones that you can schedule, you know, short of uh, something like a charter. But even charters, uh, it turns out, that whole north coast of Russia, you can't land planes in. It's where all the nuclear missiles in Russia are. Uh, and so you have to get special permission, and then that permission requires you to go through all the other, through Moscow, then Yakutsk to get there. So, um, so the the... The trip that we had to take was uh, 17 time zones around the world the wrong way, uh, through New York to Moscow to Yakutsk um, to Chersky, which was where the, the, um, the station is. And the first thing you realize when you fly across Russia is how big Russia is. It is staggeringly big. And you know, this is, we, the Moscow to Yakutsk flight is six time zones. Like crossing the United States is three, to give you an idea. And it pretty much looks the same the entire way, the entire flight uh, of just green, uh, green water river land. And the place we were going is the Saka Republic, which is a, a, an interesting part of Russia in and of itself. It's considered an autonomous uh, governed region, and it's mostly indigenous people there, except for a lot of these military outposts along the, the north coast. Um, and then Chersky is on the, the Kolyma River Delta, which is, if any of you uh, have researched anything about the, the gulags, like all the horrible gulags basically were on the Kolyma River uh, Delta. And um, a long time ago, there used to be tons of uh, military outposts along the North Coast, and I'll, I'll get to uh, that a bit. And this is one of the last remaining ones. Our group that we took, we, uh, when we landed in Yakutsk, which is kind of the last place you can take a normal commercial flight into, uh, and it's the capital of the, of the Saka Republic. That, that whole chunk of Russia is the same square mileage as India with one million people in it, less than a million people in it. Um, and so, you know, India has 1.3 billion people in that same region. Half of those people are all in this one city, Yakutsk. Um, so the rest of the people are, are very, very distributed. Uh, but our group uh, included George Church, as well as uh, Ariana Heisel, one of his assistants, a, uh, an amazing uh, a Harvard, um, uh, I guess, anthropologist who's doing uh, stories on the, uh, the futurism of Russian futurism. Um, and then our film, film group, as well as a producer of theirs. And 
as once you get on the plane leaving Yakutsk, you realize people are traveling very differently. And first of all, the, the makeup of the people changed. It was kind of all chiseled blondes going into Moscow, and then a half of that going out of Moscow. And then when you're leaving Yakutsk, going to Siberia, it changes to all indigenous people. We're the only uh, white people on the plane. Um, and then like people are flying with plants. That's was an interesting piece of luggage, right? Like, we're taking flowers to Siberia, where we are. And actually, Siberia is even, as, as Kevin points out, um, is a wrong nomenclature. Where, where we were going um, is beyond Siberia. It's just called Northeast Russia. Um, and, um, and this is what, uh, the most amazing thing about traveling to Siberia with George Church was this is all he brought for two weeks. That's like, I thought I was a light packer, but two weeks in Siberia, that was all he brought. Um, but it, just to give you an idea, it's like it just looks like this for 10 hours of flying across the entire country. The, pretty much the nearly identical kind of terrain um, as you're flying. And then the, the last flight that was on a propeller plane from Yakutsk to Chersky, um, the space on that plane is so, um, is so critical to things flying in there, they actually take a lot of the seats out um, for cargo. Uh, anything that can't be um, can't be grown on the surface within a few months, basically has to be flown in if it's fresh at all. So no fresh anything happens. Like one of the most expensive um, pieces of vegetables you could have is a potato, because it grows in the ground, which the ground has never thawed. Um, the, this part of Siberia is the place where the coldest uh, temperatures on Earth have been recorded. And then the last part when you're flying in, you realize that this is really like water world. Like it is, this is, this is the Kolyma River here, but everything is lakes. And it's also why you saw in some of that footage, nothing but mosquitoes. For the three months of the year that it's not freezing, um, the mosquitoes all hatch and want to eat you. Um, but these, these, um, these lakes, you can tell they have a kind of a, they have a funny directionality to them. And one of the things we learned there is that these lakes are actually all marching. Um, by the, the prevailing wind, loads up one side of those, of those lakes, and they start thawing the ground ahead of them. And so for the time of the year when it's not uh, frozen, these lakes are marching along. And part of that that we'll talk about later is this, there's all this methane and carbon that's trapped in the, in the tundra there. And as those lakes march along, um, it starts freeing up a lot of that carbon and methane. And so you fly into Chersky, which used to be a city of 20,000 people, and most of the structures there are totally empty now. Um, this was the kind of the big outpost at the mouth of the Kolyma River, which is one of the last truly wild, it's not truly wild, there's some dams at the very top of it, but it's one of the last large, mostly wild rivers in the world. Um, and then, you know, the airport has all these planes that landed there and never left. Um, and then this is baggage claim. They just throw all your stuff on the ground and you grab it. Um, but what was one of the reasons this place survived, aside from being at the mouth of the Kolyma River, which kind of gives it a strategic uh, advantage, is that uh, all, these are like oil fields or oil tank fields there and there. And when the Russian Empire, or the Russian uh, the USSR collapsed, they just walked away and left the whole town with six years of free fuel. And so they would just go up there and fill up their trucks on all these things. And so it gave them this kind of six-year head start on everybody else. But this town that was 20,000 is now about 2,000. And what's left is this kind of decaying, um, beautiful 
Russian world. And, and it's not just decaying kind of infrastructure, but it's also just one of the most beautiful places that I've ever been in the world. And it's, none of this landscape was something that I had in my head when we were on our way there. I kind of envisioned it as this kind of white tundra, but which it is for a lot of the year, but not always. Uh, and then the, the research station itself, which is this stunning uh, structure that used to be a, one of the USSR uh, um, TV station towers that would feed the whole city, um, the, the group that was, that's there um, rebuilt that as their station, and this is what the inside looks like. Every time there's a new research group with a new uh, country, nationality, they put that flag up. Um, but we spent uh, probably 10 days in this room. Um, and again, just to give you an idea of the layout of where we were, it's this, it's this amazing water world, and it's also this water world only for these three months. The other nine months, everybody has to use ice machines to get everywhere. So we were there in this kind of odd, oddball time of year where you have to, where they pull out all the boats and put away all the giant ice machines, um, and we had to travel by boat everywhere. But um, Chersky is here in the Northeast Science Station. Um, the Coloma coming down here. Um, this is actually Pleistocene Park. The first place we went to is all the way up here. It took two days by, by barge to Devani Yar, which I'll show you a little bit of. And then the rest of the trip, we spent going back and forth to Pleistocene Park, which uh, is some land that was effectively donated to the Zimovs for the, for the project. Uh, but everywhere you go, there's this kind of beauty juxtaposed with uh, rotting infrastructure. Um, and This water world is something, I, I mean, I grew up in Sausalito on houseboats, and it is nothing like anything you can experience. I mean, look at that water. There's not a single insect. The insects don't land on the water. The fish never breach the water. There's no birds flying anywhere. It was just the most eerie, strange place that I've ever been. It's, it's both the most wild place and there's, you can't see anything alive that's there. They, we made this one stop, which is an interesting one, which is, this is what the scrub forest looks like in pretty much all, when you, what we were looking at as we flew over Russia, it looks like this, impenetrable kind of scrub forest. And this is a, a, a non-standard condition of this area. What it, what it used to be was trampled down by mammoths, and then the grazing species would follow in and and graze and refertilize that as grasses. And that's what we kind of are starting to see at Pleistocene Park. Um, and underneath that is a thing that I didn't understand either until getting there, which is this, this, this ice wedges. So the ground, tundra is not just frozen ground, it's, it actually has structure to it, right? So there's these, these wedges of ice. And this is a section uh, at Devaniyar where the, the, the river has carved it out. But it's, it's, you can start to see that structure, and that's what's kind of represented here. So it's kind of dirt, ice, dirt. And this ice that's melting is 30,000 years old. Uh, Sergei Zimov is this kind of almost just mythic creature himself. Um, and his son, uh, Nikita, um, have been working on this project, as, as Stuart mentioned, for 30 years. And when we, we landed, we, we didn't go anywhere. We didn't even go to a bathroom. We were put onto this barge, um, sleeping four to a nice, comfortable bunk room, and got on this 40-hour you know, trip down or up the river uh, on this barge with uh, the whole Sergei's, uh, or the Zimov family, their daughters. Uh, and I think one of the more striking things about this is that's a river, right? That's, 
That's the other shore of that river, to give you an idea of how big this, this is. I mean, this, it, it kind of defies logic um, in terms of what I understand as rivers. It's felt more like an ocean, but it's all fresh water, um, all wild. Uh, and after that, we got to this place called Duvani Yar, which I think means windswept wind uh, slope. And it's this funny place that's kind of famous for, uh, by, for mammoth hunters. Um, and right now, the only legal ivory in the world is mammoth tusk. And if you find one, it's worth $40,000. So whenever there's a big storm and whenever the water level drops, all the mammoth hunters go to these funny places where that, the, that the river scallops out and kind of excavates mammoth tusk for you. And this is what it looks like. And we get there, and I'm, you know, Sergei Zimov is standing there. He's like, oh, there's, there's mammoths all, mammoth bones all around us. I was like, what are you talking about? It just looks like driftwood. And, and, and finally, after I started getting tuned into it, I was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, these are, these are all things that are on the ground. That little reddish one is a 30,000-year-old cow Whoa. jaw. And as we started walking around more and more, we just found this is a mammoth tooth. Uh, in my hand, and all these bones were the ones that we found that day. This one, probably the most impressive, is this big. It was a hip uh, bone from a mammoth. And the thing that, that really comes to light there is like it's, it's absolutely every part of the surface that you're on. And um, Sergey points out that in his studies of all of these bones, uh, that, that the density of animals that used to be in this region was you know, there's a, there was a mammoth for every kilometer. There was um, dozens and dozens of grazers for every kilometer. And it went for that whole northern region of Russia that we're looking at that they no longer exist in now. We hunted them all out of existence. The humans did. And then once the, the mammoths were gone, that scrub forest moved north, and there's basically no place for the grazers. So that whole ecosystem has changed in the last 10,000 years entirely because of humans. And that's what we'll get into why that might be interesting to change now. Um, as Stuart said, this is a totally self-funded enterprise. They're like, this is, this is the Pleistocene Park headquarters. Um, and it's built on top of those two containers because every year it floods and they have to get in and out through the windows um, by boat. This whole world gets, gets flooded underwater. Uh, and I, and I'm gonna, um, I'll be coming back in a little bit um, to talk uh, with Stuart about some of the, the science after the other parts of this happen. But I'm gonna introduce now Kevin Kelly to talk about his view of North Asia. There was this convergence of two kind of um, unfamiliar worlds that we entered into with this journey. One was the world of the mammoth and trying to resurrect the mammoth and the, and the kind of uh, craziness of that. And then there was the Pleistocene Park, which um, has this amazing permafrost underneath it. But for me, there was a third unexpected realm, which was that um, the area that we went to was actually best understood, from my point of view, as North Asia. It was an Asian country. It was Asia. And I wasn't expecting that. I mean, I kind of maybe should have realized it. But it's north of, it's basically north of Mongolia. And the people there and the culture there is... Um, is Asian. And as Xander was mentioning on the plane, you could kind of see the faces. They look like what we would call Inuit or Eskimo. They have a kind of a Asian face. And Yakutsk, the central city, is an Asian city. Uh, they're 
people walking around, and they're all look Asian, and there are, um, uh, and I was been told because I haven't spent much time in Russia, that it's actually one of the wealthiest current cities in Russia in terms of prosperous, and um, in addition to many other things of the resources, there is a lot of diamond mining. So there was apparently a very, very large diamond mine. Some of their wealth was coming from diamonds. But there was also, I sense, the kind of Asian energy in, in the city. Um, and they speak their own language, um, not just Russian. And there's, uh, I think I might have some pictures. They have their own script, which is in, well, I shouldn't say their own script. They have their own writing, but it's in the Cyrillic script, but it's, their own language. We, dumb Americans, we look at that and it looks Russian. I can't, we couldn't tell if it was Russian or the local language. They're usually doubled. Um, but they have their own language, their own written um, words. And uh, I was really captivated by um, the Asian aspect of it. And I have a couple slides, which are not about the trip itself, but what we saw on the trip outside. And I want to go through those very quickly. Um, and so the first one is, this is landing in Irkutsk. And to my eye, when I look at that, that's sort of what Mongolian cities look like. There's a lot of lawn, a lot of grass. Um, they have these really colorful roofs. Um, and they're spread out, because they've got room. <laughs> I mean, they've got room. Uh, of course, we're seeing it at summertime, and sure, it's just all snowed in. But that's sort of um, uh, the Asian look. And um, this was uh, part of the town that was a little old part of Yakutsk where there was some of the um, uh, local architecture. Um, and this was a, a monument to, I forget who I was told who it was. I don't remember. But it has this kind of Russian monumental aspect to it. Um, I really liked this uh, design. It's, there was kind of a retro s sense throughout the city of things that were built during the Russian Soviet era. And we see some of those and uh, some of these monuments. Um, this, this was a more uh, uh, classical for that, for that, um, that area. The, I mean, it's not a Russian. That was a little bit more of the kind of, it looks more Mongolian. It's a little bit more like the, the native culture. Um, there was um, the Russian double eagle. and But this kind of fantastical embroidery um, was is more North Asian to my eye. Um, this was a Lenin statue. Um, and there's a lot of wood. They build with a lot of wood. And this were part of the cities that was the old part where they were mostly barracks for workers during the Soviet time. That was until very recently, I think, the general condition of um, the kind of housing that they would have. Um, and this is a little bit more of the traditional kind of um, Russian northern with lots of wood and a lot of that kind of filigree uh, gingerbreading. Um, and this was the, uh, one of the last old parts of that town. Um, this is a lot closer to what it actually looks like. Um, those pipes up there are the um, heating pipes. So they have central heating for the town where they make all the heat in a big power plant and they send the hot water 
throughout the town. And they keep it above ground because of the permafrost. Because once you start to bury it, things start to shift. In fact, all these buildings um, are actually raised up because what happens with the building, there's heat in the building and the buildings begin to tilt and subside because they're melting the permafrost. So they're always elevated. And so all the, a lot of the, the piping all and gas lines are all overhead, um, making it, you know, it's kind of industrial looking in that sense. Um, here's some more heat piping between the buildings coming from the central plant. Um, and those buildings are basically abandoned now. They were because of the decrease in the population. This was a scientific city that um, no longer had scientists in it as it, as it was unfunded by the Soviets. And there was lots of uh, retro art um, on the sides of buildings, very, very um, kind of 1950s. Um, and this was some of the posters. If you had it translated, I think it was, I'm trying to remember, it was kind of a, let's all to get, get together and work kind of a thing. Um, and then we were in one museum where they had some really great antique um, hardware from the lab. Um, and, but there was a general sense of, uh, you know, dilapidated, abandoned buildings full of stuff. We were looking through to find anything possibly uh, useful or interesting, not much. But that was a beautiful um, mill, a hammer. Um, and then even some of the, the rust I thought was just really beautiful in their colors. This is, again, in Chertsky where we were. And what, what, what we found out was it was too expensive to remove anything. An old plane, a locomotive. If anything broke, it was just abandoned because it was so expensive to move anything that um, everything would just pile up once it was discarded. It was just too expensive to move. This, again, is kind of an aerial view. And the thing that you want to keep in mind about this is that, which was a big surprise to me, was this is summer. It's all wet. As you can see from the pictures that Xander showed, it's all kind of underbrush, um, green, as far as you can see. But underneath this all, is ice, it's the permafrost. You dig down a couple feet and you hit solid, frozen earth all year. And so to make that kind of tunnel that we went down to, you just take any spot and you dig down and you'd have an ice cave. So that whole thing is just underneath it all, it's summer, it's swampy, it's mosquitoes, but it's frozen permanently underneath. Frozen permanently underneath, it's really kind of amazing. Um, so, uh, lots of, we were at the height of the wildflowers, beautiful colors, um, you know, un, un, uninterrupted, very sparsely inhabited. There were a few fishermen way out along the rivers. And even those who I think we kind of discovered were there only during the summer. These were kind of their, their summer. There was nobody out there in the winter. Um, but it's beautiful, wonderful colors. Um, and it's uh, a water, water world. Oops. And so we were moving like they would do in a river during the summer. And during the winter, the rivers become highways 
for ice machines. In fact, they prefer, they can go faster and more stuff is moved during the winter than the summer because you can drive much faster along those ice roads, the rivers, than you can in the boat. And so most of the stuff was hauled around when it, when, during the winter when it's frozen. Um, these are some tractor treads that became a path in the backyard. Uh, let's see, back. That's the view of the, of the um, science station where we were. This is, we got ahead with a, um, a Russian grandmother who was cooking for us her pancakes. That was very Russian. Um, and the broidered uh, lace windows. Um, and this is some more of the local architecture um, along the river. Um, some of the Soviet leftovers. I couldn't tell if that was ironic or not. It was like, are they serious, or is it just sort of, it was never really clear. Um, this uh, is a guy we met, and he um, lives along the river, um, and he's chopping his wood, he's got his dog, playing chess, chess is a big thing. Um, these are just uh, a couple that I met walking along the road. Uh, you can see their very Asian features. Um, here he is. Uh, he, he was a helicopter pilot, a retired helicopter pilot. And um, I think he has some kind of pension that allows him. And I think, again, he, he, if I'm not mistaken, he does not live there during the winter. He moves into some apartment in Yakutsk, I think. Um, but he... he uh, had seen some of the world because I think he was flying. Um, and now he, he, he did, uh, I love this homemade knife. Um, and, he, and this is the, again, what these ice caves are is a place to store fish. So what you do is in your garage or something, your shed, you have a little hole down that you dug and you fish during the summer. And as you catch the fish, you throw them down into the, freezer, and there's the fish that are just frozen. So that's your free, cheap free freezer. And then they do this stuff with, they also dry the fish into um, these kind of, I don't know, crinolinated fillets of some sort that you eat as a snack. Um, like this, it's kind of salted dried fish. Yes, and they feed the dogs fish. That's what the protein is. And you can see some similarities with North American Indians because they're just right across the pond. And um, there are uh, bones and flags, and this is some of the traditional embroidered um, beadwork that they do, which also has a similarity to the Native Americans. Um, and then there's these totem poles that are these, often in the kind of a view, uh, a sacred kind of spot that had a nice view. And um, they're, they're very ancient. I mean, these particularly ones are not ancient, but the style and the, and the making of them are ancient. Um, 
and they're they're sacred poles of, and they have kind of um, different once had horse heads on them. Horses are something that they find very very important, um, and they're also into tying ribbons and cloth and stuff on trees. They're almost like a shrine. I saw a couple of these around there with other things at their base. I'm not really sure what was going on there. And Anna, our anthropologist, wasn't sure either. This is more in town, much more of a, more of kind of a Russian style um, where they have the cemeteries. This is a cemetery and they put fences around a lot of the graves. And this is also an Islamic tradition as well. A lot of the stands in Central Asia do the same thing where they basically they make a, a fence around the grave, even if it's not visible. And they even do things where they kind of have tables and like a picnic area where you can sit and have a, some food, share some food next to your deceased ancestors. Um, and they're into the kind of having the pictures engraved onto the um, gravestones. Again, this is some cool artwork. Uh, we were at an evening where um, they were singing for us in um, local folk songs, drinking songs. And this is a uh, guy, the, or our host, the, the um, helicopter guy, but just showing, I thought, how this is really North Asia. So that's all I have. Thank you. The Pleistocene Park idea that the Zemos have been working on for 30 years is that basically the animal biomass in the entire Arctic and subarctic used to be 100 times greater than it is now. It's basically depauperate now in ecological terms. And what they're doing is putting a, a density of grazing animals, Yakutian horses, which you saw in that first video, uh, reindeer, buffalo, they're trying to get some more American bison there, muskox, and so on. Uh, get them in the density they used to be. They trample the snow, which um, they need to do to get at the grass in the winter. That gets the cold down through the snow to the permafrost, keeping it cold. And um, grazers make grass. That's how it works in Africa. That's how it works everywhere. Mammoths will not be completely required to get the mammoth step back, but it would help because um, elephants generally are good at ripping up trees or knocking down trees. And then that opens it up for the other grazers to come in and turn it into grassland. That, that's a normal cycle, the way it develops in, say, the Serengeti in Africa. The richness of animal life that you see in those parts of protected Africa now are like it used to be all over the world, including here, and including the Arctic and subarctic. And one of the reasons <clears throat> there were, there's hope of getting the woolly mammoths back once we go through this process uh, is that it's wonderful habitat for them now with the other animals to help turn it into grassland. They're grazers themselves. And you get enough of all these animals back you get the mammoth step back, which is grass, which fixes carbon, replacing the tundra, which is currently thawing and releasing greenhouse gases. This is, um, what's her name? Ariana uh, Lysol from George Church's lab. 
and she's looking very uh, calm and studied, but she's thrilled out of her mind because this is a, um, the trunk of a female mammoth who was 60 years old when she died, some 10 or 12,000 years plus ago. And because of that cold permafrost and all of that, this is not a fossil, this is the trunk of the animal. And for me, I mean, in a way, the trunk is the sort of most elephant part of an elephant. And to just sort of take hold of, wearing the blue gloves, the trunk of this female mammoth from that long ago was a personal connection across that time to how it used to be and to how it might be again when creatures exactly like her can come back to that part of the world. Now what Ariana is doing is cutting off pieces of tissue, uh, which she got from this and from another museum, and taking it uh, back to Harvard. Um, this is one of those things where the Russians say, well, there's a whole lot of rules, you've got to get this, that, and other permissions, and uh, it's basically hopeless. Don't even think of taking tissue with you. Um, would you like a plastic bag to carry it in? <laughs> <laughs> and we gradually caught on that's how things work. Uh, the answer is always yet, but there's a way. So um, I won't go into the full science of how the mammoth is going to come back, but George Church is leading the way on that, and we'll probably see more of that in the film that we're about to see from David and Jason, who are here, yes? Come do it. Hello. Test, test. Okay. Uh, so we are the filmmakers who are trying to make what, what we hope is the definitive story about Stuart Brand's life. And for many of you who know Stuart's story, you know that is a lot to put into an hour and a half long documentary. So it's quite a challenge, um, but uh, our test tonight is actually much more simple. We just want to explain how Pleistocene Park fits into Stuart's biography. Um, so, uh, you know, as a child, and those of you who have heard Stuart speak before, you've heard him talk about this, he took the conservationist pledge. In fact, he remembers it to this day. In fact, he can re recount it on, on, a, on the drop of a hat. An American to save and faithfully to defend from waste the natural resources of my country, its air, soil, minerals, its forests, waters, and wildlife. So he loves it. <laughs> and, it's a, and, and honestly, it's a good thing for a child to learn something like that. I mean, it's about protecting the environment, about taking pride in protecting and conserving species and making sure that ecosystems are healthy around you for the betterment of the future. And so in our documentary, our hope is that people can walk away from our film thinking about how they can protect the environment and take that into the future, but also how technology is not just a good way to do that, but for the future of humanity, it's an essential role in protecting the environment. And so you know, that's what we want people to walk away from our film thinking about. Okay, so why is it that we went to Pleistocene Park? Um, it sort of rhymes with, uh, oh, thank you. It sort of rhymes with, yikes, here we go again. Okay, so it rhymes with the way that Stuart views the world. Uh, Pleistocene Park um, with technology and human in uh, intervention and meddling, they're not foes to the environment, but are actually our best hope to be good stewards of the whole earth. So. Behind me, you'll see footage of the whole Earth catalog. Think back to 1968. We're kind of situating our film around this idea um, that Stuart put forth uh, back in the 1960s 
And the Whole Earth Catalog was an inherently optimistic organization at a time when, or an entity, when it was not, not really popular to be optimistic given the fact that it was the height of the Vietnam War, political assassination, yet it brought together these hippies and hackers and do-it-yourselfers uh, with a hopeful story of self-empowerment through access to tools. So um, likewise, um, Yes, okay. Well, likewise, Stuart was quick to point out the inherent optimism in uh, biotech conservation and in rewilding. It is not merely undoing uh, a wrong or fixing something, it's actually creating an ecosystem, transforming it into a more heightened, better version of its former self. So um, we are gonna show just a quick two-minute uh, film sample from uh, our, our film as we have it now. Extinction is a different kind of death. It's bigger. We didn't really realize that until 1914 when the last passenger pigeon, a female named Martha, died at the Cincinnati Zoo. We have the ability now, and maybe the moral obligation, to repair some of the damage. There's a gap in nature when these things go extinct, it never completely fills in. The ecosystem we've done that to becomes damaged. And we've gotten used to the horrifying realization that extinction is forever. When an animal's gone, it's gone. But what if we could bring back species that have been extinct for a while? at the point of taking on conservation problems that people didn't even talk about because they were so unsolvable. Well, now there's a path to solving them. Here comes biotech and genetic rescue. Now that we're able to study the genomes of extinct species from their remains in museums, we can basically recreate from that knowledge genetically using a closely related living species, edit the missing genes into the living species, and basically recreate uh, the extinct species. And we're gonna be in the next couple of years moving directly on uh, everything from passenger pigeons to great auks in the Northern Atlantic Ocean coming back into a kind of a, a health that we haven't seen in centuries. Okay. Okay, so uh, right now uh, with the modern environmental movement, uh, the dominant issue of course is climate change. And so Pleistocene Park, as Stuart mentioned, has this kind of interesting novel approach to mitigating climate change that David's gonna talk about. So uh, we discovered that um, about something like twice the amount of greenhouse gases that uh, are in the ground than are in the atmosphere currently. So it's an extremely important that that stays in there, it stays in the permafrost and doesn't get released into the atmosphere. Um, when we were there, it was actually sort of an important time uh, in the history of climate change, understandably, because the, the permafrost for the first time did not refreeze during the winter. 
So that process has already begun where there's this sort of feedback system of the warming planet is making more methane gas go into the air. And this is an extremely important crisis that we all need to focus on right now. Um, so we have a clip that we're going to share, share with you, which is Nikita Zimov explaining to the team uh, their perspective on what's going on. So we are in the Arctic, and we are now inside the ground and inside the permafrost. So everything around us is frozen all year round. So here in the Arctic, uh, temperatures are so cold, and they've always been so cold, that the soil never thaws. Like deep under the ground, on the surface you may have some trees, some grass, but down here it's always frozen. And it's called permafrost. However, the problem is that with the climate change, this permafrost is not so, very soon might be not so perma and more of a not so frost. And that's a big challenge. So when I was a kid, down here, like at this horizon, temperature was mild, minus six, minus seven centigrade. Quite enough below freezing. But now it's already minus three. And in the last three years, it's actually made a huge step towards becoming like zero. And in some places on the surface, there is already some permafrost degradation taking place. And it's a huge challenge and a problem for us. Not only for us, but actually for you. Because these sediments is the world's largest terrestrial carbon storage of the planet. And you know what will happen if this permafrost will start? They will, like, the roots will become available for microbes to eat. And when the microbes will eat them, they will produce greenhouse gases. And those greenhouse gases will go to the atmosphere and additionally warm the climate. In order to keep permafrost frozen, you need to expose it to the winter cold. Winters are very cold here, but from the very autumn, snow starts to fall and accumulate on the surface of the ground. And this means that this layer prevents, like it acts like a coat, very warm coat. If you have a meter of snow, doesn't matter how cold it is outside, underneath the snow it will not be very cold. You need to like, just bring back here animals, which used to live here and used to do that job in the past, 20,000 years ago. We need to bring horses, we need to bring bison, maybe eventually we can bring mamas, right, George? Yeah. Yeah, so, and they will do that job for us. They need to eat, they are looking for food. And in the winter, they will dig through the snow and by that trampling the snow and exposing ground to the winter cold. And this would keep permafrost colder, by a few degrees colder than it is now. And this few degrees might change like a lot, you know? So, oh, thank you. Um, Right, so um, basically the recap is that um, because of climate change, there's creating more moisture in the air, which is creating more snow on the ground, right, every winter. And then that snow, and, and this is kind of counterintuitive, but that snow is acting like a blanket, like a coat, right? And it's making the ground warmer, and the permafrost then is not keeping frozen over, over the summers and winters. So their solution is to introduce herbivores, modern herbivores uh, from other places, um, musk oxen and Yakutian horses to kick up that ground layer. All the meanwhile, George Church is trying to create that mammoth for us to put the mammoth back and they can take down those trees. So uh, there's a lot of animals coming in there. Uh, we don't know how long it'll take, but there's one drunken night with a lot of vodka where they're talking about a saber-toothed tiger, and I just think that's awesome. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, so one of the takeaways when we uh, came back from Siberia was that Stuart is still that same giddy conservationist of his youth who took that pledge, <laughs> running with reindeer and with Yakutian horses. It's a baby there's a moose baby there, moose, by the way. Three-month-old baby moose. Um, so we had this awesome opportunity to film with uh, the Long Now crew, uh, sort of interacting firsthand with a rewilded ecosystem. Those grasslands right there weren't there before those herbivores were to open up that space, that mosaic that Stuart was referencing. 
So it was a, a, an amazing opportunity to see firsthand how humans and the environment coalesce. Um, one of the things, oh, I'll play it again. <laughs> oh, yeah, so one of the, one of the things that we uh, were trying to do as science filmmakers is sort of connect this through line for all of Stewart's co uh, projects and ideas throughout the course of his life, which has actually been quite a difficult process. Um, but one of his, a lot of his friends actually, uh, Xander and Kevin included, have pointed out that Stuart has this uncanny ability to take abstract ideas and turn them into icons. And so this is what happened with the whole earth, uh, the photograph of the whole earth becoming sort of the stand-in for our place in space and reframing and refocusing um, how we viewed everything. Um, and then the clock of the long now, of course, reframes how we see time. And uh, what we see is with Pleistocene Park and uh, de-extinction, but really biotech conservation in general is a reframing on how we can possibly view life. So thank you. Thank you so much. There are a couple of souvenirs, of course. In Yakutsk, just in the hotel, there's this uh, thing showing beautiful knives that they had for sale, along with uh, some beautiful fur stuff. And we went to one of those ice caves. There's another one in Yakutsk underneath the museum. Uh, it's very cold down there, so they offer you coats that you can wear. And um, apparently a very common coat, the way all of the Russian women stay warm. And then, Ryan, I need you up here. <laughs> Now's your big moment to uh, stay warm in this cold California climate. She's now a Russian woman. When I got back, I explained that uh, David Alvarado got his lady diamonds because that's what they mainly sell in Yakuts. And uh, Ryan was... <laughs> Sorry. What's the name? What's the fur? Raccoon. So Q and A. Oh yeah, it's raccoons. It's okay. From Italy. <laughs> that, that's how they make them. It'll, Italians make these raccoon coats and sell them to all Russian women. And it really does keep you warm. Buy it right here. Well, that's thinkable. So, um, so we're going to set up for some Q and A um, here. But I think as, so. If we step forward, Stuart, while they move our chairs around um, and then everyone's going to join us on stage. I think the one thing that's um, that I wanted to ask you um, in your correspondence with George since this trip um, and any of the other science, um, what has happened since this time, since August that you know of? The, uh, I'm just going to toss that back in. The, um, George has been working on getting genes Sorry. from very well sequenced woolly mammoths into uh, Asian elephant cell lines. They're so closely related. They're actually, Asian elephants are more closely related to the woolly mammoths than they are to African elephants. African elephants and Asian elephants can themselves hybridize, so it tells you they're pretty close. Uh, they've moved about 16 genes that have to do with things like long uh, woolly coat, uh, subcutaneous fat, blood that uh, will manage in very cold climate. Uh, and uh, insensitivity to temperature, all of which would be part of making basic Asian elephants very happy in the subarctic and Arctic as things go forward. Uh, after all these years, they're finally getting to the point of publishing the papers, at which point we hope that then that next level of plausibility helps carry forward funding and so on, and we can move it beyond just 
coming out of George Church's lab. Cool. And I, I think, I mean, the, the biggest takeaway for me on this trip is I thought we were, largely I thought what we were doing on this trip was going to the place where we were going to put these mammoths um, that, that we had talked about uh, re-engineering. But what is, I think, abundantly clear, hopefully, in this presentation and also became clear on this trip is how much the mammoth is actually going to help humanity. Um, and it, it takes, the, you know, we, it's a 50 square mile park that they were able to largely bulldoze uh, the, the scrub forest down on. But you saw how big Siberia is and how big northern Canada is and northern, all of the whole northern hemisphere of this kind of tundra land. And we need a natural ecosystem that is creating this level of, uh, of refreezing re and giving the, the tundra a better chance at staying frozen um, through the summertime. Um, it's fine in the winter pretty much, but it's the summertime is the real danger. And just to be clear, a couple of things. One is there are some other attempts to do this, not just in northern Siberia, but even in Europe and other places. Um, and this idea of kind of turning over this geoengineering using biology is sort of the big aha for me was, oh, this is how we're going to do it. We'll just have animals set loose who self-replicate and feed themselves. And over time, very quickly, they'll just, they'll just do this transformation. But the other thing that w I didn't really understand until um, I heard George explaining and Stuart as well was just to re reiterate the idea of bringing back the mammoth was that you you turned an elephant into a mammoth slowly bit by bit mm -hmm. and so it wasn't as if you kind of like Horton hatches a who where they hatch <laughs> and there they are and you put them loose it's this idea that you're going to actually going to kind of devolve an elephant into a mammoth slowly over time mm -hmm. which makes perfect sense to me now that I think about it. And do you have a question? question. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I'll have the mic, so after I ask this question, get my attention, uh, don't point to the stage, point to me and I'll bring the mic to you. Um, it was a question from the live stream, folks in the live stream can ask questions too. Um, they asked when summer is, and, and maybe you can say something about what the seasons are and how they map to the year. I don't know if you guys, how much um, you guys know about that. I'm, as near as I can tell, it was largely the month of uh, August, um, but even the month of August, um, you know, we had cold, snowy days uh, there, which were mercifully free of mosquitoes, um, but they were cold, snowy days. Uh, they tell us that July is the time that nobody wants to be outside because the mosquitoes will carry you off. Right. We thought the mosquitoes were horrible, and like none of the people there even, if you saw like Sergey, like his little mosquito net was not even zipped up. He's like, oh, this is not bad mosquitoes. The it's bad mosquitoes, like they visually impair you from seeing across an area. Uh, they, they're often mistaken for fire smoke um, on the terrain. They're so bad. Jane? So I have been hearing about this project for many, many years, and you know, you guys are finally there, and you're seeing it, and you're with George and other scientists, and I guess my question is, um, did it seem more or less feasible, more or less plausible, more or less achievable, and, and what kind of resources are going to be required? That's a perfect question, because I was sort of going there looking for that, and Part of it is the sheer competence of the ZMOPs, both of them, and the, the, the depth of time and commitment that they've made there, that they've got the beginnings of a real-life demo of you know, what had been an essay in Science Magazine some while back. 
Uh, when you have a density of animals on the land, it really starts to change in the way that one would be glad of, and there's all these more animals. So basically, the land coming back to life. But that sheer competence they have, I mean, they're in such an impossible situation all day, every day, <laughs> from our standpoint, that the fact that they can surmount, I mean, Nikita has stories to tell of, you know, getting through the snow and almost dying and being in a situation where he's lost, he's not sure he's going in the right direction, he's frozen. All this, they all have stories like this. And so these are insanely competent characters. And I trust their science, and I trust their capability to carry it through. At a completely different level in the lab, I feel the same way about George Church. So this particular project is in such good hands, and the science, I think, is so well proven at this point that I believe it will all go forward. Is that I, I, I think it, for me it was, it was both sides of this equation. Where both I was stunned to find out how realistic it was to do the kind of the basic science of this project, and I was also <laughs> stunned at how massive the scale of the problem <laughs> is and how immediate that tundra melting problem is. Um, it was literally the summer that we were there, that, and the week we were there, the, pub, the paper was published around the frozen layer, not uh, huge portions of it not freezing. And you, you know, after you fly 10 hours across Siberia, you're like, wow, there's, there's a lot of stuff to do here. Um, so if so, you look out at all of that landscape, you've been flying over for 10 hours and think, all of this landscape is becoming a greenhouse gas problem and might be converted over time into a greenhouse gas solution, that's big. It doesn't even include northern North America yet, but it will. I don't have much doubt that a mammoth will be resurrected and that it even could have the effect of clearing Pleistocene Park. I think it's another level of belief to, to imagine it you know, spreading across all of Siberia. I mean, it could, but that's, that's just another question. So I mean, I think there's different levels of success, and I think um, I think the success, the the close success of making a version of a mammoth and having it have an effect within that area, I think that looks like it's kind of could really happen. Whether it takes off or whether it has the total effect that everybody wants, I think that's much un much more uncertain. But I, yep. I think the first thing seems very plausible to me. Jason and David, what did you see? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're asking a couple of millennials if we can edit genes, and I think, <laughs> absolutely. So, you know, to us, that's natural, right? Like, we just grew up in the era of seeing computers change rapidly, rapidly, rapidly. And so this feels very natural as part of, like, our timeline and, and witnessing technology. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think for us as filmmakers, you know, I think the, uh, the thing that we're, that we know that our audience is going to be asking is that sort of Jurassic Park question, right? You spent so much time thinking if you could do it, you didn't stop thinking, you shut <laughs> Slam the table. Well, to us, there's like so much more interesting ideas there. Should we? And what does it mean when humans both decide to do it, to go forward with that? Or if we decide not to, we choose to select not to use technology to try to safeguard the planet. I think there's just so much there that just, that there's not clear answers, but it should be talked about. Do we have more questions? Brian? I have the mic. Uh, Ryan, Ryan here. Um, I recall there was some experience, and I'm not sure if it was captured on film, uh, with the methane gas, and I'm wondering if you guys could say a little bit about that potential and the visual for the movie. 
it was I, yeah go. it was a very did you guys capture yeah, yeah, the, the, the link. yeah so so I don't if you don't have it queued up what it was was um, and apparently this was a common demo is uh, <laughs> if you go into one of these links of the zillions of links there and you disturb the bottom of the muck it releases just bubbles and bubbles, very large bubbles of methane. And if you can capture that with a bucket and light it and have it burn off, just showing that it's methane. So it's just, you just walk out and stir up the muck. You have a bubble or some container to catch it and you're showing that there's this methane just permeating this, um, this soil at the bottom of the lake. And that was a kind of a demonstration of how much methane is actually encapsulated in this in this terrain. And so um, he showed us, and then hopefully you guys got it on the film, right? Yeah. That was when the mosquitoes were driving David yeah, most right, crazy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was dusk right, right. on a lake in yeah, Siberia. Yeah. Right. yeah, not good, it's mosquito time. Another question. Hi guys, great, great presentation. <clears throat> um, I participated in a trophic cascade studies at Yellowstone Park, so mm. you introduce a keystone species, whether wolf or um, or grazer or browser, and it changes everything below it, right? Trophic cascade, which is essentially what we're talking about here. Methane's real, climate change's real, this is all happening really fast. Love the, the, the efforts around woolly and genetics, but what about the what about the pursuit or the inquiry into the other grazers and browsers in the landscape? What's already there? What needs to be replaced? What can be acted on immediately? Is there hope in that? Is that not really hopeful? What's impactful like five, 10 years out of the out of Pleistocene Park? Because there's a bunch of other animals are putting in the landscape. Well, I mean, that's the thing that they're doing. I mean, you saw some of the footage of now. I mean, the, the thing that they can do is knock down a few trees in, in the area that they're in, drain one of these lakes, um, which creates a huge pasture land, and, um, and reintroduce some grazers. Um, and there's some challenges to that. While, while we were there, they were trying to fly in some buffalo, um, which they were trying to fly them in from Alaska. And um, turns out every single transporter company that will fly you buffalo, like at the last minute, realizes they're landing in a militarized part of Russia that their plane might get confiscated in and then decides not to do it at the last minute. So they've been having a lot of trouble with air transport. Ground transport, like one of those stories that was uh, told to us um, when Nikita brought the, um, the the herd of muskox in um, in the winter, the, the rivers, the only way you can drive to this region um, is in winter when all the rivers freeze over. And so uh, there's no roads otherwise, it's all just you know, too muddy and swampy. And um, so he loads up muskox uh, much further south and then starts driving them when what's supposed to be only a seven day trip in the middle of winter through Siberia to bring them. And then his truck proceeds to break down multiple times. And now he has to scavenge for food for the muskox. It turns into a 21 day trip. I mean, you can imagine if you ever were gonna go on a road trip that started at seven days and there's no gas stations, there's no anything. Um, and he got these, this herd of muskox, the small herd of muskox there. Um, so this is the kind of thing that they have to do right now, clearly with larger kind of government support and some you know, large cargo planes, they, a lot of those technical challenges could be, uh, could be fixed. But what they have is a, is a really good laboratory showing that, I mean, the muskox when it showed up had almost no hair on it on the top of them and uh, very small amounts of shagginess. In two years, there's like, <laughs> there's 
big fluffy muskox, totally, you know, immediately cold adapted. Um, the reindeer are already cold adapted. The Yakutian horses are from um, further south in, in Yakutia, but they're, um, they're staying year round now. There's two separate herds that are doing well there. So the, the grazers seem to, they, they adapt right away. Um, the thing that's, that, that's the only thing that seems to be missing is ways of creating the pasture land for them to stay that far north. The real rate limiting factor is money. There are now, I think, 12 books on de-extinction and almost zero money for de-extinction in any of the species that we and other people are working on. For some reason, it's a taboo subject. And um, you know, with money, this whole thing could swarm ahead. The science is in place. The, the lab work could swarm ahead. And uh, this kind of work they're doing out in the field could swarm ahead. They have another property south of Moscow that could be a Pleistocene park that uh, would be open to uh, tourists to come and help, you know, pay for it. And it would be like uh, uh, the Delta in Rwanda, that uh, uh, Southern Africa, that people would come to and pay to start to engage all these animals in the wild. So there's ways this thing could grow and take off. It's just getting over this weird, high interest, low funding thing that's going on. Um, and you know they're ready to persist another 30 years, just plugging along, doing these insanely heroic things in order just to keep it going. But uh, it could move fast at any time. In the back. Hi guys. Yeah, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. It was so fun to to kind of get the sense and feel of what that was. I have a two-part question. One I think is hard, and one's I think pretty easy. Um, I'm curious about the the science behind the, the climate impact. And I think that um, that it sounds like there's the genetics behind bringing back the woolly mammoth, or at least trans, tr changing the Asian elephant into something akin to woolly mammoth. But what does it look like from the, the climate potential? Here, it feels a little experimental, but I'm curious about that. The second question, which I think is the easy question, is when are we going to see this documentary that is going to inspire the next generation of conservationists and change makers to be the next Stuart Brand? Why don't we start with that? Yeah. What's the, uh, oh, okay. Well, yeah. So we're now just starting editing, so it feels very daunting and feels uh, like I'm getting ahead of my skis by saying this, but. We're gonna be done essentially in 10 months, whether we like it or not, so um, I, we haven't even started uh, editing. So it'll be out uh, in winter of 2020, so January, February 2020. Okay, and then the science. I'm gonna pass this off. I, I should say also that these guys have uh, gained access to not, this was one of the interesting shoots that these guys have done um, on, somewhat through the auspices of Long Now and many other ones. So this is, uh, this is a small window into some truly, truly amazing footage and historical stuff that they dug up that even Stuart didn't know still existed. So I think uh, it's going to be really, really amazing. Um, what was the, the, other, the science behind the, the Pleistocene Park and whether or not that's really working? I think the, there are papers published on it they, that um, they kind of, the way that they kind of stay in existence is by hosting um, climate scientists there at the research station and taking them out to the park. Um, some of those tunnels tunnel under the park and then tunnel into the the fenced off area that's the, the, um, the scrub forest. And so that they're, and it's, they're taking temperatures at 
at levels of you know, 10 feet, 20 feet, all the way down to 50 feet down, and seeing how that's changing and what kind of gases are coming out of the soils. When we were there, there was Russian um, geophysicists, because there's no such thing as a Russian uh, climate scientist, because there is no climate problem as far as the Russian government's concerned. Um, but the, um, those geophysicists were concerned, and they were studying that. Um, but I think it's, it's, it is very much an experiment, and there's, there's not many places in the world that you can do that work. And so they, they host these scientists at the station who are doing that kind of work. Some of them are from international um, communities, uh, and some of them are, are local Russian, well, local in the sense that they're Russian scientists. But, but they are publishing, and they are engaged and plugged into the scientific community, so it's not just kind of quackery. They are as much as possible trying to do um, and publish real science. And, and I should say that Nikita actually is going to be in the Bay Area in um, uh, March doing a series of talks. And so pay attention to the Long Now stream. We'll, we'll let people know where those are um, on Twitter and, and things like that. Long, <clears throat> Long Now is staying involved in this, even though Revive and Restore stepped away as an organization. Uh, because Long Now is you know, supposed to take on centuries and millennia. And getting the woolly mammoth herds all the way back up to the density that uh, they once were uh, is going to take a while and long now and tends to be on the case all the way through that process. Yeah, I mean, I should say a little bit about that is that, I mean, to me, the reason long now should pay attention to this is whether it's a success or a failure, that somebody is actually recording and thinking about it over that kind of time span. You know, as, as many of you know, most scientific research is very focused. It's never very um, broad survey work. And um, uh, that seems to be things like the Rosetta Project, where we cataloged massive numbers of languages, but not at high detail. But much broader sources um, seem to be unique data sets. And so that's the kind of thing that we want to pay attention to over time. At the right here. Yes, our filmmakers mentioned key threads uh, throughout your life and career. So I'm wondering, for the prevention of further species extinction, what are the key insights or maybe even frames that we can use to prevent further species extinction? Uh, Revive and Restore is focusing on the, bringing the genetic toolkit to wildlife conservation. So we're focused on the, basically we show up when the traditional conservation biologists are desperate. And they are, for example, desperate in Hawaii because there's an avian malaria that came in on an invasive uh, mosquito that is bothering the people, but the disease that they carry, the, the native birds have no resistance to it at all. They are doomed. They will extinct out as the temperature gets warmer. They're going higher and higher in the forest up in the mountains until there will be no mountain left because the mosquitoes will come all the way, and that's that. So the people that are trying to protect native birds in Hawaii, in the whole archipelago with high islands, um, come to us because nothing else works. You can't spray the whole island. You can't do the kind of individual thing that it would take to get all these things. So you want to turn the mosquito against the mosquito and using gene drive or Olbaki or various other techniques that are being developed for this kind of purpose, you can get the mosquitoes to eliminate the mosquitoes on the island. And so there's now a whole program going on that we're part of in Hawaii called Mosquito-Free Hawaii. That's one example of dozens that we and others are starting to engage through using genetics to head off extinction for species that are in trouble. Further back? Oh, um, 
I don't know who wants to answer this, but <clears throat> I've heard, I mean, you hear this on Planet Earth documentaries, that the taiga, pretty much along with the Amazon, the forest is one of the main sources of photosynthesis. Every summer, it's, you know, restoring, uh, eliminating fossil uh, from the atmosphere. So <clears throat> there's, a, there's a conflict between eliminating the forest and replacing it with grasslands that don't do that as well, but actually produce more albedo to reflect light, and if you stomp it down, keeps the tundra with permafrost. That seems to be the part that I wish there was more science on, and maybe there is, and I don't know it. It's but coming. like, how do we know that stomping on it better and the elephants bulldozing it naturally will actually offset? There's a <clears throat> very good paper that came out recently, and Ryan might have the reference on, basically saying that trees and climate is a complicated issue. And uh, there are lots of areas, for example, it turns out redwoods, the bigger they get, the more carbon they fix. So save the old growth redwoods, preserve the biggest ones. They're doing the most in terms of fixing carbon. In terms of the boreal forest, which largely came in uh, after the megafauna were uh, extincted by us and by other effects, the boreal forest, well, we were, where we were, you saw the, the forest we were in was like yay high. Uh, just some 40 miles north is what's called the tree line, where no trees can grow at all, and yet it still is all this tundra and so on. The boreal forest is an albedo issue in the sense that all that standing, dark, needled, depauperate, nobody feeds on those boreal forest evergreen trees. They're, they're just stark, kind of uh, horror movie trees, frankly. <laughs> and um, because they stand up, they darken the albedo of a vast area, and the birches and so on. When they're down, and it's mostly snow on the ground for most of the year, anything that turns any part of the surface white is ideal for keeping things cool. And this is one of the reasons that we're in this terrible uh, flip in the North Atlantic, or in, in, in the polar regions of the North, because every bit of melting ice turns into open ocean. Uh, and as they say, ocean is about as absorptive as an asphalt parking lot. So keep the ice and lower the shadow aspect of these trees um, so that it can be reflective snow most of the year, which it was back in the day. Which is also in conflict with this idea of scraping it up and making some of it exposed for keeping it colder by, mm -hmm. um, by the, the hoofed species. And so that's what, you know, they are, as I said, they're taking temperatures underneath where that's happening and underneath the boreal forest. And so far what they're coming up with is the side, the Pleistocene side of that, um, the Pleistocene park side of that equation is keeping that area colder, whether or not um, it's, you get as much you know, photosynthesis and um, carbon sequestration from grasslands as you do from that scrub forest. Um, you know, forest, I think when you think of forest in South America, it's very different than the forest that you saw. That one slide I had of it, it's just like it's this brushy 10-foot um, high scrub land. Um, so it's, it's not um, this massive trees that you think of in um, in South America. So it's, uh, I don't know the science behind that particular part of the equation. A lot of science has been done. A lot of science is being done, and a whole hell of a lot of science has to be done to figure out all the nuances. Because in every one of these issues, uh, you sort of want to be a simple yes, no, do this, don't do that. 
and then it's always complicated, and then people say, well, it's complicated, you don't know exactly how it's gonna work out, so do nothing. And the do nothing option is for sure the one that is leading to very bad outcomes. And so the proper response to it's complicated is, good, do the research, find out the parts that work, find out the parts that don't work, stop doing that, and move on. And do, I think the thing that I've wound up out of working with all this stuff, be a whole lot more interventionist in your experimenting in these natural systems. They are not sacred, they are not fragile, they're not gonna tell us uh, how they actually work just by observing them. We know a whole hell of a lot, but not enough yet by just observing them. So we need to do the things like Pleistocene Park where you fuck with it. And then see, watch very, very closely what happens when you tweak it here or tweak it there. And geoengineering is based entirely on that kind of research. This is a little- I ranted, hey, hey you got me going. Know, this is, you got me going because uh, it's a little off topic, but actually that insight that these systems are so complicated that thinkism doesn't work. Thinkism is the idea that if we think about things enough, we can figure them out. But actually, what you just enunciated through was this idea of, a, of intervention engagement, is that we actually have to try stuff, do stuff, act upon it, make mistakes, interfere in order to figure out how they actually work and how they can make better. And that actually applies to technological systems today. So my rant is that the Facebooks of the world, the coming VR world, we can think about them all that we want, or even AI, and try to imagine how we can make them useful, not hurt us, good for the world. But we're not gonna be able to. The only way we're gonna be able to figure out how to use these and make them best is by using them actually intervening, trying, making mistakes, thinkism just doesn't work for very complicated systems. And even our artificial systems are so complicated that thinkism doesn't work. Yeah, you just need some really tough, badass Russians with trucks and equipment <laughs> yeah, right. that are willing to do the experiment for 30 years. Right. I know we have to wrap, we're close to wrapping up, is that right? We're, yeah, 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 I was gonna say, why don't we all give uh, all five of our speakers a big round of applause. Thank you. And uh, you guys already, most of you already have these, but all of our speakers get a Long Now Challenge coin. So you get a new challenge coin for speaking for us. Yes. Well, you can exchange it for a drink if you this so choose. This gets a free drink here for the rest of our lives, right? Uh, <laughs> One, one free problem. drink, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but give it to a friend and tell them to come out to the interval. Yes. Thanks, everybody. And we've got another talk uh, next week. Um, any final words, uh, Xander? Uh, I just want to thank you all and um, for going on our little trip with us. Um, and I know it was a crowded night, but um, it was great to get you all in the room for this. And thank you very much. Anyone who wants to try on Ryan's fur coat, he's uh, demonstrating over here. Thanks, everyone. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more long-term thinking lectures hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org podcast or wherever you like to listen.